Retirement Blues Goodbye, along Wainwright's Coast to Coast Path, a book by Richard Cowley. Chapter 17, Episode 1, a quote relevant to Chapter 17. A man may fish with a worm that hath eat of a king, and eat of a fish that hath fed on that worm. William Shakespeare, Hamlet, Act 4, Scene 2. Blakely Ridge, the Lion Inn, to Gladesdale, eleven and a half miles, six hours walking. Across the moor, the air had been infused with something rather unexpected and sinister. Overnight, a dense marsh fog had stolen in, shutting out the light and turning mossy banks into slippery slime. The miasma's vaporous tendrils stifled the chilled earth, choking off all colour. When we started our journey at St. Bees, the sea mists had deepened our anxiety of the unknown. Dense low cloud on the lakeland tops had denied us the thrill of scrambling up a precipitous hillside to Red Pike, and several days later thick mist deprived us of the anxious moments navigating the Razorback Ridge of Helvellyn. On these occasions we were able to follow alternative routes. There was no substitute path from the line into Gladesdale except for a short stretch using the grassy verge alongside the main road. It was either the verge or carry on through the murk and drizzle to confront the treacherous marsh. Regardless of the route, that morning I woke feeling elated, as though during the night I'd cast off the shackles of purposelessness. I couldn't say whether the feeling of letting go resulted from what had gone before, or was an expression of a new-found freedom, or escape from the mundane. Who can tell? What was clear, however, was the overwhelming urge to be on the road, bog holes or not. Breakfast was a less fraught affair than the previous evening's dinner had been. Gone were the day-trippers, the casual diners, and the regulars out for a pint. Residential guests... Mainly hikers were the only ones lining up to take on bunkers, stoking up against the elements. A subdued atmosphere hung over the breakfast room. Most diners ate in silence, perhaps contemplating long hours trudging across unfamiliar moorland cloaked in dense mist. The Lion Inn is the only accommodation in that region of the moorland, and so caters for an expected throughput. The breakfast menu reflected this certainty, and consequently offered a wider selection than most guest houses. For me, it was kippers, all the way down. No matter in what corner of the British Isles, herring are cured, each smokery claims their kippers to be the best in the world. As a kipper lover, I thought I'd conduct my own taste test on the examples on offer. Kipper sampling is a long way removed from wine tasting, in which even the most prized vintages may be spat into a silver bucket. Kippers have to be eaten, digested, and complete the remainder of the food cycle before their benefits can be fully appraised. The compliant standard test is not restricted to colour, bouquet, or taste. The after-effects must be assessed, and they cannot be known until hours later. I forged ahead with the taste test, but was handicapped as the audit could only be half realised. When the kippers arrived, they reminded me of a pair of odd shoes I'd bought in a sale. One was size 9, and the other size 8. The larger kipper must have been the skipper of the shoal, for it was golden brown, tasty and magnificent. The runt of the pair was a different kettle of fish entirely. 
wrinkled and black, as though partially cremated, it resisted knife, fork, and tooth. I left it on the plate to face an uncertain future alongside the sucked clean bones and skin of its leader. There was no need for sunscreen this morning. The besieging mist limited visibility with a veil of damp greyness that chilled the face and numbed the hands. The opaque blanket clung low to the soggy earth, squeezing the acid stench of marsh gas between its folds. All sound was stifled, like the muffled oars of a smuggler's skiff passing close offshore on a raw winter's night. My bulky response to nature's mantle was warm clothes under green wet-weather gear and the grey woolen hat pulled tight over the ears. For the first mile or so, the trail was easy. Our chosen path followed the grassy verge alongside the road. No matter how blinding the mist, we knew exactly where we were. With visibility below twelve feet, only foolish motorists or those obliged to travel were on the road. Even in that gloomy shroud, I felt safe trudging alongside the road, as motorists were forced to crawl by with headlights ablaze. Each vehicle appeared fleetingly through the hoary haze, like a shimmering carriage on a slow-motion ghost train. Not all were as lucky as we that morning. A lifeless pheasant draped over a painted road sign was testament to the dangers of the moorland road. The fresh meat would make a fine feast for a desperate traveller living off roadkill. Walking on the springy grass proved to be a surprisingly agreeable experience. A grey world of soft dampness parted with each step, then closed in behind. The eerie cocoon in which I existed was a private and curiously comfortable place to be. Having established an effortless rhythm and pace for the morning's walk, a mood of well-being settled on me, a feeling forgotten since childhood a contented familiarity with nature in which I felt acknowledged and silently understood. It was wonderful walking through the mist and the unfathomable silence of the Yorkshire moors. All too soon, happiness was tinged with sadness, then sadness to choking revulsion. A sheep lay sprawled across the path, not quietly grazing on moist blades of new growth, but a wretched carcass of soggy mud-stained wool that oozed sinister horns and four black cloven hooves. The hapless creature had been battered to death on the road, then dragged to the verge and dumped. Animal carcasses are common on unfenced roads in open country. There are bush tracks in Australia marked after dark, not by lines of shimmering cat's eyes, but by the reflections of headlights on the glazed blank stare of slaughtered wallabies, wombats, and kangaroos. Initially, with the wind at my back, the appalling sight of the dead sheep didn't trouble me. Downwind, the vile stench and cloying sweetness of rotting flesh clung obscenely to my face and throat. It was so shockingly revolting that I stopped breathing until I escaped the cloud of decay and death held low to the ground beneath the weight of mist. Our direction was confirmed by the signpost to Rosedale Abbey. Near a stubby white cross known as Fat Betty, Peter joined me and we cut through the mist at a comfortably brisk pace. Occasionally we glimpsed shadowy figures moving through the murk off to our right. They'd opted to take the treacherous shortcut across the boggy moor, a trail Peter had chosen to avoid because of the added danger caused by poor visibility. That morning, Peter and I experienced a first since leaving St. Bees. Normally, other trampers flashed by, leaving us in their wake. 
The conditions must have suited us, however, because we gained the odd privilege of strolling past walkers who were slower and more cautious than we were. Suddenly all was alarm. Stifled howls of horror cut through the mist from the dangerous boggy area to our right. Immediately Peter and I were jogging along a sodden gravel track towards the cries. Lundering along, the shouting became closer and more anxious. Suddenly we were upon them. Three shadowy figures bowed low and stumbling about in the mist. The air was filled with the cries of three American dowagers, squatting with their luminous leggings tangled around their ankles. Sorry for interrupting the flow of your conversation, ladies, I called above their wails of laughter. Chill it, guys, one of them yelled. Our concern was sinking thigh deep in the bog. We're relieved. Our only mishap is being caught midstream. Her reply drew more yelping glee from the others, who were clearly comforted by our gallantry and speed of retreat. The snippets of subdued speech that drifted through the miasma were a comforting reminder that we were not alone. Many trekkers had chosen the path through the precarious boggy area, where it was possible to sink waist-deep into the marsh. Our roadside path brought us to the wonderfully named Great Fry Up Lane. Yorkshire's answer to the Isle of Man's famous Ham and Egg Terrace. The trail veered away from the Bitumen Road onto a muddy track towards the stone barn known as Trough House. The abandoned barn is a famous landmark from where, it is claimed, eastward-bound hikers may catch their first glimpse of the North Sea. In the gloom, we were lucky to see Trough House, let alone the distant sea. However, we located the barn with ease, by the gushing praise being heaped upon it by a troop of outdoor types doing a billet inspection. Trough house is fantastic, bellowed one voice enthusiastically. Plenty of room, and bone dry too, yelled another. With this here, what a waste of money the lion in was, another shouted peevishly. Purists, I thought, and ambled on.